Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to season four of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Foran. My guest this week is an old pal from my early days in media who has gone on to become pretty much a superstar, best-selling author, TV presenter, and role model to young LGBTQ plus people everywhere. His name is Riyad Khalaf. For this episode, we talk about his experience of growing up gay in Ireland and the layers of anxiety that went along with that, the anxiety he still deals with today, and he specifically shares insights into the anxiety associated with the act of coming out and telling your nearest and dearest. Riyad articulates everything so beautifully and so clearly and with such vulnerability and honesty. I really hope it speaks to you as much as it did to me. Thank you, as always, for listening and for supporting Owning It, the series, either on www.patreon.com forward slash Caroline Foran or via the new support button on Acast. Till next week, I will leave you with the amazing Riyadh. Riyadh, thank you so, so much for joining me on season four of Owning It, the Anxiety podcast. Thank you for having me. It, it, you know what? It's just a joy to hear an Irish accent. <laughs> like, oh, I know. I'm, I'm over here in London and um, I haven't been able to go home uh, for months and months for obvious reasons. And I just find myself like voice noting Irish friends just wait. I don't even listen to what they're saying. I'm just listening to their accent or the other day I was playing the cranberries and the cores on loop. You oh. just get so homesick. So th- this is great. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad to hear that you haven't lost your Irish twang either, because that can happen. People who go to, to the uh, London's town, they get all very posh and everything. So. Well, do you know what? I think, I think it, I've softened a bit because th- there are certain things that we say that they just don't understand, like our slang. They don't really understand gobshite um, Yeah. I mean, people up north kind of do. So you, you, have to, you have to become a little bit one of them, but not forget who you are. Yes, absolutely. So basically, someone tweeted me a while ago saying that they love the series and they found it really helpful. And what they would really love to see me explore is anxiety among the gay community and particularly looking at anxiety around coming out. And I just thought, like, I just stopped me in my tracks and I was like, you're absolutely dead right. This is something I absolutely need to cover. And I'm, I'm like ashamed and I'm sorry that I haven't gotten around to it sooner. But here we are now. 
It's all good. I mean, there's no time like the present. And, and to be honest, Caroline, it's constantly changing. Um, the, the process for young LGBT people or even elderly LGBT people who, who come out later in life, it's, it's never kind of um, cut and paste. This is what it's like. Um, but I think there are some really, really key things that you go through mentally um, that are constant. And I yeah. think that I can share them with you. Yeah, because as someone who you've spoken and written so beautifully about the challenges around growing up gay in Ireland, you've been on, you know, every TV show in the UK and here. Um, and you talked about the anxiety that goes along with that, be it social anxiety at school, if you were on the receiving end of bullying or, you know, anxiety as you build up towards an event such as coming out to your family, as well as, I mean, now in the position that you're in, and we'll talk about this, the, the career that you have, I'm sure brings a lot of anxiety in itself because you are, I would say, like very much a role model among the LGBTQ community and um, so you instantly struck me as like the absolute perfect person with whom to have this conversation so I can't thank you enough for giving me your time fine hon this is just a chat I'm having a great time like, <laughs> I love it oh okay so first of all I'd love to just give listeners a little bit of insight into who you are what you do on your career because when we first met you were on spin 1038 here in Ireland and now you are like global superstar I can't even keep up with all when you post up on Instagram I'm like what the fuck so give it, give us your, give me your story there. Uh, so I am, um, I'm Irish Iraqi. Uh, dad's from um, the Middle East. Mom's from Blackrock in Dublin, and I, I grew up in uh, Bray and um, had the most gorgeous, amazing childhood. And um, sort of realised I was gay. Ooh, probably about eleven or twelve, um, and and that really, really sort of um, fucked me up uh, in childhood, both internally, the sort of mental acrobats acrobatics that I was doing trying to survive with the shame I had um mm -hmm. but also like you mentioned the bullying and I know we'll get into that in a minute um but anyway I kind of I felt I fell in love um and had an escape from all of that crap in um media I don't know why I don't know what drew me to it but I just had a, a, such a love for broadcast so um I set up a pirate radio station in my bedroom when I was about 15 um, super illegal and I started doing my own little show uh, after school from there it was like it was called the hook 100 fm <laughs> and the the aerial is still attached attached to the family house uh, roof as well which is lovely um, and I just sort of slowly but surely sort of trained myself I got um, a couple of uh, radio jobs and um, I was presenting on spin 1038 and producing on 98 fm in Dublin dream jobs and then um London called um I, I had done some viral videos on YouTube that got a lot of attention and so you would would you describe yourself as a YouTuber I did um okay. now I feel like when I say that you get a quite a negative reaction and that's because of a lot of um bad actors in the YouTube community who kind of make content that's really not good okay. um so so what I say is um YouTube is part of my world. I don't. I don't upload very regularly. I'm. Um, I'm a producer, presenter, um, and uh, production company director, and an author. Oh yeah, that too. But you know, <laughs> this is this is this really annoying thing about millennials. It's like, what do you do? Well, where do I start? It's, like, <laughs> it's actually it's the not, worst question to get asked. Exactly, and it's you know what it's like. It's not that you're like. Um, overly um, ambitious and you want to be better than everyone else and you, you're really greedy and want loads of money it's literally because in, in this world that we live in you've got to have multiple revenue streams because 
Lord knows one, two, or even three of them will drop out from under you in, in the blink of an eye. I mean, look at, look at lockdown. Um, so uh, I think, you know, people our age in, in the media business, we're very aware that, you know, to, to keep our mental health in check, we've got to make sure that we've, we're safe and we can pay the bills. Um, and being a jack of all trades or a Jacqueline of all trades is kind of the way to do that. Absolutely. I mean, I, people always say to me like, oh my God, how do you do it all? You do so much. It's like, I have to, because any one of those things could fall through. There's no security there and you need to keep um, evolving and, and keep like thinking of new, new projects. But that, that is the job. It's coming up with projects and ideas and creating stuff that, that you never, you never finished with that. Absolutely. And you know what it is? I think um, the, the more wins you have, the more kind of ammo you have in your back pocket to try risky things. Exactly. So, you know, if I do um, a big gig, it does really well and I get a nice payment out of it, I will always use a proportion of that money to kind of try out something really weird and wacky. Mm-hmm. And it would probably fail, but you know what? It was fun and I wanted to know for sure that it wasn't going to work. So um, I went to London. I worked at um, one, one of the world's biggest news websites. You probably know it. And um, it, it wasn't a very enjoyable experience um, for a number of reasons. And I ended up leaving after three months and I was completely lost. I had no income stream. I had no purpose. I was in a weird city that I didn't really understand yet. And um, the only sort of thing I had to, as a security blanket was my best friend, Paudy, who um, let me live with him and kind of guided me through London life. And mm-hmm. anyway, the blocks just sort of fell in, in the right order. And I, I got a phone call from my agent and I, I landed a BBC um, docuseries as presenter. It was called Queer Britain. And that was just the dream gig. And it, it gave me about six or nine months of, of heavy, intense dream work. Wow. Um, and then off the back of that, wrote my book and um, did a few Radio 1 podcasts. It just sort of, the dominoes kept falling. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very, very, very lucky and happy to be where I am. But obviously, you know, there are other hidden challenges in there too. Yeah, but you've worked bloody hard to get there as well, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean... I can't tell you how many, like, I can't tell you how many episodes I've had where things on the outside would seem super, super successful and, and great. And actually deep down, I'm, I'm at home and I'm crying on my partner's shoulder or I'm questioning, am I, do I actually have a talent? And, you know, severe, severe imposter syndrome or yeah. taking, taking an inevitable turn down on an idea that I pitch as kind of a, a stake in the heart and a, you're not worthy of ever working in this industry again when it, that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Um, and imposter syndrome is, is such a is such a huge driver of anxiety and I think it's something we've all experienced. But for me, when I've tried to define it or I've written about it, um, I think the best kind of explanation for me was when it's there's a kind of a disconnect between what you put out there to the world and how you view yourself privately and they don't line up and I guess for you that's probably always when you're in your experience of growing up that was always the um the disconnect that that fed anxiety even though it was related to, to being gay that's do you know what you're a bloody brilliant interviewer you just nailed it um <laughs> I I've never really thought about it that way, but you're so right. I, growing up, I was always, um, I, I was becoming a, an expert at um, having a veneer, an expert at 
um, censoring myself and contorting and editing myself to appear straight, to appear normal, um, and to deflect any unwanted attention, um, and to deflect really the, the nightmare and the, the biggest horror and fear, which is someone editing me. Um, and it's, it was exhausting. It was, it consumed every fiber of my being. I was in class, you know, trying to learn about subjects that I really was interested in, but nothing was going in because I was so caught up on how to speak, how to move the things that I should be interested in, the people I should be hanging out with. And then, you know, when I, when I started to um, have a career in media, I was out of the closet. People knew I was gay there was an expectation on me to be um, their version of yeah. a gay man, yeah. not my version of Riyadh. Because I'm Riyadh before I'm Riyadh the gay guy, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. And, and I think the general public um, and my colleagues who were at large straight cisgender people, they, they, the, only, um, the only sort of uh, regular exposure to gay men that they had was in forms of comedy characters and yeah. movies and TV um, very, very flamboyant television presenters. And they sort of expect that you are that. And if you're not that, then you're obviously um, a weird kind of gay person, not our kind of gay person that we... They don't love. understand. They don't understand a gay person. That's not what they're seeing on media. Exactly. And, and what you, they, for, they fail to remember is that although Graham Norton is amazing on TV and, and he's, he's quick-witted and, and fabulous, you know, he's not always like that because, he, well, if he was, he'd have no friends. He'd be incredibly annoying. And, <laughs> and I think he'd be the first person to tell you that he enjoys nothing more than going down to his um, holiday home in Cork in the summer, chilling out with a book and some wine and, and you know, not being on. Yeah. Um, and it's the same, same with a comedian. You never expect a comedian to always be giving you the ha-has. They're, they're, there's a real person underneath the laws and there's exactly. a real person underneath the, the gay. Yeah. Um, so if, if we think about you sitting in classroom, um, dealing with that, that fear and that, and that shame that you mentioned and try, trying to like really um, curate your likes and dislikes to, to fit in, what was that? Take me back to that time. What was at the root of that fear? Like, what was the what was the big risk for you? What what were you trying to protect yourself against? The, the fear was the unknown, um, and the unknown included endless possibilities of terror. Is how I put it. Mm-hmm. Um, the terror was a fear of being um, beaten up, fear of being humiliated, fear of being accused of being a pervert. Um, and then uh, in terms of family, fear of being kicked out of home, fear of being honor killed uh, mm-hmm. by a parent or someone else, um, fear of losing everything that you hold dear, friends, family, education, um, and, um, and also the fear of, of, of um, having inevitable failure in, in the career that you want to pursue. But this, this thing that is part of you that you can't seem to, to take out. You know, I wanted to physically, surgically cut out the gayness in me. Yeah. I thought that if I could do that, then I would be, I'd be able to have my dream job and I'd be able to have a happy life. This was a parasite that was going to render my life. And was this fear, was this fear brought on by some, had you seen someone else go through these things that you were fearing would happen to you because, because they were gay? That's a really good question as well. I'm trying to think of where, 
where that influence crept into my psyche uh, came from. I'm, I, I had definitely seen some flashes of documentaries on the TV about homophobic attacks and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I had heard people um, use derogatory terms towards gay people in the playground. Oh, you're faggot. Oh, you're queer. Oh, you're sicko. Oh, no, no, no. Um, I had never heard my parents ever, ever utter anything homophobic. So I think my fear was, um, and I'm some arsehole playing music. Um, I can't hear it anyway, don't worry. Um, Yes, so I I never, ever heard my parents be homophobic even once. So I think think what I did was I manufactured this this fear um, as a protection for for me I I, my my sort of thinking was if I can prepare myself for the very very worst potential outcome then whatever does happen I have rehearsed it I have lived it at least in my head I have and I can in a way um soften the pain that is going to come um was the fear the how how, when you actually did eventually come out which i'd love to know when when that was if you don't mind telling me how did the fear of coming out and all these these worst case scenario thoughts in your head measure up with the reality of what you actually experienced um so i coming out is a weird thing caroline it's like it's like (laughs) you know you've had a a heavy night out you've had a load of jaeger bombs and (laughs) i know you haven't you're pregnant at the moment but you (laughs) but i will Uh, soon (laughs) <laughs> and you, you know you you're feeling like i'm gonna vomit and you know it's coming you don't know when but you know it's on the way maybe in the next five minutes maybe in the next hour do you know maybe even in the morning well that i and can relate to being pregnant yeah <laughs> oh right okay morning sickness yeah. so that's probably a better analogy then <laughs> um and for coming out is like you know that this thing is about to, to it's in your throat it's in your chest it's in your stomach and it's going to come blurting out and you can't stop it and, and what happens in, in the months and weeks leading up to that point is you, you become incredibly um, irritable. You've got a short, short fuse. You lose interest completely in all the things that you, you hold dear. Um, and you kind of become a bit of an arsehole. Mm-hmm. And I think the outside world sees that as just you being a moody teenager. But that's what my parents, teachers and friends did anyway. Because I was at that age anyway um, of you know, being a little shit. And, um, and, and I must say as well, not every person's coming out will be like this with this slow and steady buildup of tension. Mm-hmm. Um, but and what age were you? 16. You're kind of, you know, you're in the lead up to the leave insert. Um, you've got a lot going on. You've got the pressures of your body changing. You've got the mm-hmm. pressures of um, an expectation that you're going to start kissing people and start, you know, doing sexual stuff at parties with friends. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of peer pressure there. Um, and, uh, so I, I felt it building up and um, I remember I, I don't know what made me make this decision but I, I felt like I had a, some small inkling feeling that I was still a bit bisexual that I had like there was one or two girls in, in my school who were very attractive and I think I more idolised them than fancied them and for me I was like well I'm going to fucking cling on to this shred of heterosexuality yeah. as long as I can so I, I so I decided I was going to come out to my three closest girlfriends as bisexual and um, so I pulled them aside uh, in like our first class that morning and I said um, at break time I need to say something to you and actually I was I was nervous but I was also really really excited because 
I had had about four years from the age of 12 to now 16 to process this, uh, deal with this shame, deal with the anxiety and not fully accept, but accept enough to be able to say it to someone without um, wanting to run away yeah. and hide in a, in a hole. So I pulled them aside at the break time. We walked um, around the school and I finally just said it. And they were like, oh, oh, cool. Oh, and, and they were really inquisitive. They were like, oh, so like, who do you fancy? Like, do you, do you like Sam? Do you like David? Do you like that? And it was just the most amazing, shocking, um, uplifting and motivational moment for me to think they're not, they're not calling me a perfect. Like you said, mm-hmm. they're not. They're not um, holding me at arm's distance. They're like hugging me and, and happy for me. Um, and they're shocked and they're kind of, they kind of also feel like they kind of knew. And it was just a really, really lovely moment. And I told them, please don't tell anyone. This is, you know, my secret to tell. And I want to tell people in my time. Um, the next day, the whole school knew. Oh my God. It's just too much of a, too much of a golden piece of gossip to hold in I guess and that was bittersweet in one hand I felt like you took that away from me that was mine to tell I had had kind of worked up to this moment for so long and now I I don't have that I don't get to tell my narrative in my own way Um, and the other hand they did the hard hard work for me they did the groundwork for me so yeah. l- looking back on it now, I don't hold any grudge. I don't hold any anger. I'm like, life is life. They were kids. I was kids. And actually, I, I thank them for being so lovely and, and warm um, and giving me the motivation to talk about it to more people. Was the anxiety worse before you had that experience and better after? Or was it, was it vice versa? Or did I, so the anxiety lessened definitely because I felt like, well, you fucking know who I am now. Not only you, the teachers know too. So there felt like there was a degree of protection that was going to be there. Yeah. I didn't have to have the awkward conversations about, you know, who I want to go to bed with because, you know, even talking about that with this, an opposite sex partner as a teenager is awkward. You just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, but what I did notice was the, the residual anxiety that was still there changed. It, 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 the mask changed and it took the form of um, someone out of the, I don't know, it was probably six to 800 people in that school. All it would take is for one of those fuckers to go home, to find my parents, to text them, to, to tell them. One of those kids to tell their parents and for that parent to get it back to mine, to my family home. And so I felt this really, really strong need to sever ties between my school world and my home world. Um, So that would be me going home and not speaking about school at all. That would be me trying to discourage my parents from going to like um, PTA meetings and me maybe not even going on school trips or, or, or hanging out with school friends as much because the overlap would be there in terms of my parents meeting other parents. And having grown up with your parents being um, very, you know, loving childhood, very supportive, was there a reason that you went peers first, parents after? Yeah. And, and you know what, this is, this is something that a lot of um, my um, straight friends and family didn't quite understand initially. Um, and if, you know, if you're listening to this now, you know, I've got a family member and I'm kind of upset that I was sixth in line to be told. What I always say is, 
the later down the line you are told, probably the more important to that person you are. Because you're coming out to people on the periphery for a reason. They are your coming out guinea pigs. That's what I call them in my book. Mm -hmm. They are the testers. um, and, And those three girls I came out to, even if they did act badly, I knew I could survive that. That was the reason I chose them. I knew that this was survivable, even in worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, parents, probably not survivable. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't come out to those girls first, I never would have had the confidence or I wouldn't have known how to articulate correctly to people who really, really mattered. So you're getting your practice in, essentially. Exactly. Because it does take practice, Caroline. This is very complex stuff for a young person to explain in, you know, we're, I think we're emotionally um, deprived as young people, we're not, we don't do any sort of real deep learning about how to um, speak about how we feel in school. I think the closest thing we get to that is SPHE. And, um, you know, something like this is a conversation that you would expect an adult to have. It's, it's that big and that sort of fundamental to who you are. And to expect a 15-year-old, 16-year-old to, to be able to do that is, is a big ask. So yeah. practice is usually needed. Absolutely. And when you were living with that fear and that, that shame of trying so hard to, to squash it down and bury it, you must have had a turning point where you realised actually the anxiety of trying so hard to deny who I am is worse than the anxiety involved with actually embracing who I am and owning it and, and, and going through this. Do you remember that moment where you're like, I can't do this any longer, I, I need to... Or had anyone, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, had anyone sort of outed you to yourself before you before you even were ready to even um I guess admit it accept it to yourself identify it with yourself totally so um I remember the first ever time someone called me queer and meant it not just as a flip and throwaway word like you are one of them was in primary school so years before I ever came out to anyone and um, it was hilariously, it was one of the teacher's sons who was in our school and he was a brat and a bully. And I remember he called me queer in a playground. I thought it meant you're weird, just as like, you know, oh, you're a fucker, oh, you're a gobshite. I, I, I equated them in the same world. So I remember I, I went to my teacher and I said, oh, so-and-so is calling me names. And she said, what is he calling me? And I said, queer. And I, I remember to this day, I must have been 11. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember her face just dropped. And she went from being like, oh, what did he call you to, okay, wow. And I was like, what did I just say? Yeah. What is it about this word that has such significance? Um, and she she brought me to the principal's office and I had to tell him in front of her what he said. And I'm looking at her and I'm looking at him and he's having the same face as her and he's looking at her and kind of going, "Uh Oh, and so then, and they know that I'm a kid and I don't know what's ahead of me. Like they, they saw the gayness in me before I saw the gayness in myself. I mean, I was the boy who was sitting in the school playground making daisy chains, not playing football. I mean, it's kind of a bit of a giveaway. And I remember they called him in, they made him say sorry. And that was that. And it was the end. But for me, it wasn't the end. It was just the beginning of me going and doing research. And I remember asking people what it meant. And in very sort of kiddie, um, inaccurate ways, one or two of my friends told me what the word queer meant. Oh, it's like when 
when a guy has like sex with another guy or when you know I don't know how they put it but that's essentially what they said and it was like a ton of bricks um coming down to me because I kind of was beginning to feel like I had attraction to men mm-hmm. to boys um and you knew instantly that that from this I guess the society you grew, you grew up in even though it was your first time feeling anything like that you knew to think that's not right yes yeah that's not the way you do think that's not right because every Disney movie I watched was a prince and a princess or you know a, a, a prince charm or whatever every every family that my parents hung out with was a, a husband and a wife and their children with a house and a dog and it was very very structured this is what you do you go to school you go to the next school you go to college you get a girlfriend who becomes a wife you get the house you get the dog you do gardening 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 you die that was sort of it you know yeah. and um and I knew that my, there was such a big thing in that mix that was not, you know, what everyone else had expected of me. If I had a, a man instead of a woman in my life, well, then that cuts out job, obviously. You can't be gay and have a job. That's what I thought anyway. Wow. You, can't, you can't be gay and have a child, of course. And who, who's going to sell you a house? Yeah, and so it was like this is the end. It, like it, this, this identity is not compatible with life. You might as well be dead. That's mm. what I honestly thought. Yeah. And I did have suicidal thoughts, and I did have severe anxiety and depression, and that I was dealing with by myself. Um, um, and I forget what the rest of your question was. I, I'm just so captivated that I forget what it was too. But from so from about maybe eleven, twelve, you're starting to realize. Um, that you're you're gay possibly or or bi and then it's 16 17 is the is the coming out phase how was the anxiety manifesting for you i mean was it anxious thought was it just like worst case thought scenario or sorry worst case scenario thinking or were you having physical um panic attacks or anything like that yeah so i i remember having um the the physical elements of what i now know as a panic attack then but not knowing what it was yeah and it being crippling and not really having any tools to get rid of it. I'm, I'm just thinking back now to zoning out fully, completely zombified in classes, um, either in the middle of a panic attack or then the following class sort of after the panic attack had gone and regularly falling asleep in class because of how exhausted I was. Mm. Like regularly, I would just find it impossible to keep my eyes open and as a fact uh, and as a result I would often be sort of seen as lazy or like a bad kid or ignorant yeah when really I was dealing with something that was so much bigger than algebra or you know history (laughs) and I wish I could go back and tell those teachers now um you know what was actually going on underneath all of it yeah um so yeah, there was a physical element, but then also, you know, I, I was incredibly vivid in my imagination. I would, the color in which I would play out these really, really horrible scenes was just like, you could, you could make a movie out of it. And it was, you know, everything from being shouted at to being attacked to running away from people and being pinned down and beaten up and 
And this is like, you know, you could be in the most beautiful setting of like in, in a field having lunch with a couple of your mates. So I did have mates, but they had no idea that this yeah. was going on. One of my biggest learnings with my own anxiety has been that so many times um, our ability to cope in a situation when we're in it is far greater than our fear that we won't be able to cope when we haven't actually gotten to that point yet. And I'm wondering with all of these worst case scenario um, kind of running through your head, did you ever actually then find yourself in, in a worst case scenario situation in real life where you're like, actually, here, I, here now that I'm here, I I'm actually, I can handle it better or I, I, because I've run through it and I've, I've, I've kind of considered the worst case scenario and I've thought of how I will respond. Did you find that actually your fear was bigger than your strength or your strength was bigger than your fear? Um, yeah. So there was one situation where it did sort of get to that point where I was like, aha, uh-huh, I've been here. I've prepared for this. And this is actually somewhat milder than I thought it would be. And, and the hilarious thing was that the, so I'll tell you what it is. Um, my when I came out to my dad eventually, um, it, it was I came out to my mom, and then she was great about it. it was just sad that I had to live with this secret for so long. It must have been heartbreaking for her because you're her baby, you know, to know that you were going through this and she didn't know and she couldn't help. That would that thought would kill me. Yeah, yeah, like you know, you know that that little gorgeous miracle growing inside you little boy the last thing you would want yeah the last thing you would want is for him to keep a secret from you and I know that if he said to you at the age of 15 16 that he was feeling that he might be gay um, or that he was gay that you would be totally amazing about that um, and that's great because you know that's probably a generational thing as well you've grown up in a world that's way more accepting yeah but you know my mom was so wonderful um you know, not just as a mother, but also as a best friend. And she, um, yeah, she took it really hard to know that she couldn't have been there. But then she really stood up to the mark quite actively. And we decided together that we were going to keep it to ourselves for the time being and figure out kind of a way to tell my dad that will hopefully be, I don't know, easier for him, easier for us. And... I think what we soon figured out was it was better to just not think about it and pretend that, I don't know, it was just never going to happen. It was easier. And then eventually, nine months later, it did happen. And we had just a random family argument. And my mother said she just got to the end of her tether. And she said, it's time to tell your dad. And she said it in front of him. And I was like, what? Time to tell him what? No, shut up. And then I, I, I just couldn't say the words my my mouth was just not making any anything and I just wanted to say I'm gay and it was it was paralyzing so I I had a book on the table and I ripped out the back page of it and I wrote the words I'm gay on it and slid it across the table to him and then um he paused hugged me and said look I love you everything's going to be fine we're going to fix this and then he went and sat in the downstairs bathroom toilet for hours wow and and what did he mean by fix this so he he in his head thought we'll find a solution to cure you to make you straight um that this is either confusion or a phase yeah um and he he genuinely you know felt like this was something that we could work on together as a family and 
he was never a homophobic guy. And, and now, years and years and years later, we know that actually it was just his upbringing. Mm-hmm. It was just him afraid of what other people would think, afraid of the Joneses, afraid of the people in his um, community and, or the extended family. And it's always it's always fear, but fear is not the excuse. Fear is the problem. Yeah, yeah, it is. Exactly. And you shouldn't act on it. You know, um, you should try and sort of look inward on it and fix the fear, not fix the, the gayness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and <clears throat> so th- that wasn't the traumatic moment. The traumatic moment um, that I had kind of rehearsed for came months, not months. Sorry, let me say it again. That wasn't the traumatic moment. The traumatic moment came, I think, a week or two later when my dad had kind of really spiraled in on himself and he was dealing with incredible, incredible anxiety. And he was very, very low. So, so bad that he couldn't even look at me in the eye. He was actively ignoring me, not speaking to my mother. He was, he was a zombie just floating through his day. He would go to his garage just not do anything, just sit there all day in the days and he'd come back and he'd eat and then go to bed. And it was just not like him. My father is and was just so warm and funny and engaging and just so present as a dad, great dad. And so that was weird for me to see. And it was very hurtful to know that I had caused it and I didn't know how to fix it. And how can you accept yourself when the people that you love, if they, you know, it goes, it's so dependent on the acceptance of your nearest and dearest, your acceptance of yourself. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
So what happened, Caroline, then was my fear and shame turned into anger. I was angry. How dare you? How dare you make this about you? This has got nothing to do with you. I have been battling this fucking thing for four years and I'm going to have to keep battling this thing for the rest of my life. This is easy for you. You just need to say, yes, I love you. Let's go back to normal. Fuck you is essentially how I felt. And my mom was upset as well that her husband was nowhere to be seen in terms of his personality. So she asked me to go outside and bring a beer to dad. Um, He was looking at our little garden pond and she said, just chat to him, just talk to him about how you feel, just be honest and ask him why he's, you know, not speaking. So I went out with the beer and our conversation started. Well, it was a, it was a monologue. I wasn't getting anything back. And I just said to him, look, dad, I can't change this. This is, this is really just a part of me and I've tried to change it. I have tried and it, it won't work. And I think that this is okay to, for me to be this way. And I think um, this, is the, this is the clincher that really sort of put me up at the edge. I said, I want to one day be able to fall in love with the man and bring him back here for you to meet him and have dinner with him. And then he goes, was like, why, why this way? Why do you have to be gay? And he started crying and shouting and he collapsed on the floor and he just was absolutely torn up. And he was just like, why, why? He kept going over and over. It was almost like he was possessed by, by the shame of having a gay son. Wow. And my mom and I, I remember just looking at her and she was, she was in shock. I had never seen her face. Even to this day, I haven't seen her face like that. But bizarrely, I was detached. Yeah. I, like you said, I had been there. And, and in my head, the thing that I had played out was worse than this because it involved death and destruction and physical violence. This was an emotional outburst. And I actually was quite, I was like a fucking, I was like a soldier. I was yeah. cold and hard. And I was almost, I didn't say this, but I felt like saying, Get up off the floor, you idiot. That's what I felt like saying. Yeah. And I, so I just stood there and watched him. I just, I literally just watched him and I was like, this will end soon. I felt sad, but I also felt like, you know what? If it needs to be this way, then this is the way it's got to be because I can't change this. I've tried too hard. I spent years trying to think of breasts at night in bed, years trying to look at women and find them attractive and years trying to avert my gaze away from beautiful men on TV in my class, teachers, <laughs> it didn't work. Mm. And then, um, you know, I, I should just quickly say, you know, dad has made a complete, you know, 180. Um, since then, you know, that was, that was over a decade ago. He is the most loving, accepting, amazing you know, father ever. He comes to pride marches. He, you know, he's met so many boyfriends. He, he loves my boyfriend, Josh, almost as much as he loves me. Um, and, and we have had that dinner, that, you know, that dinner that I spoke about that night, that everything yeah. went bad for many of them. Um, and how that happened was, oh, he, I gave him space and time to simmer down. I allowed him to have his outburst. I allowed him to have his emotion and his shock. 
but then he he worked hard in his own time to reconcile you know all of that and figure out that actually I'm his flesh and blood and other people's opinions don't matter yeah the shame isn't a thing and can you remember a time where you felt notably whether it's accepting of yourself or accepted by your family or accepted in society where you just felt at ease um like that first kind of feeling of I've I've been through this I've done all the hard work I've been through the hardest yeah I think it, we are watching the Eurovision um, hilariously and there was uh, a guy on stage, I can't remember if it was the singer or a dancer, someone performing who was very obviously gay and dad um, was sitting on the couch to, to my left and he made some sort of a gay joke about him. Not politically correct, <laughs> but he made a joke and then looked at me and go, ah, you like that? Or something <laughs> and it was the first time that there was light, that there was like a, a, a lightness in our conversation. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't dark. It wasn't charged. It was just, it was like, you're, you're finally getting it. You're finally not seeing. If you're able to joke about it, you're not afraid of it anymore. Exactly. And I was like, I honestly, it, it, it was the biggest thing. And for him, it was just a throwaway comment. And from, from that point on, you know, see, this is the thing that I always say to, to families who come to me looking for help. The, 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 the road to um, full acceptance and, and pure love in your family post a coming out episode has to be um, a collaborative process between um, the one who's come out and the family surrounding that person. It isn't just that person coming out and doing all the groundwork. You have got to do work to to become an ally to be unconditionally there for them um and and you know you've got to you've got to work hard to break down all of the crap that you that's been bred into you from a young age that gay people are um dangerous to be avoided um overly sexual um stereotypically uh, effeminate or uh, you know that anal sex is is a is a disgusting thing to talk about. That you know that it's not a real relationship, and in, the list goes on and on and on. And these are very very small microaggressions that seep in to your your um, lexicon of how you speak day to day, and they become normalized. Um, Yes, and it's just the same with racism, um, everyday racism, microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And you, I'm not a racist, I'm not a homophobic, but it's that kind of thing. Yeah. So you've got to really work to, um, to bash that out. And it can take months, it can take years. There are occasionally things that a friend or a family member will say and I have to call them out on it. But at this point, they're such allies that they're like, of course, I'm, I'm so stupid for saying that. I'm sorry, it won't happen again. So you had done the work to to get to where you got to with with the people that really mattered to you and that was like hugely significant in terms of reducing the anxiety. But then there comes a point where you can only control you and your reactions to the world around you. You can't control what happens in the world. You can't control how people perceive you, especially in the, in the career that you're in now. But do you you've mentioned the word shame a lot and shame and anxiety often go go hand in hand. How did you go about dismantling that feeling of of shame about yourself? And, and, and does it ever creep back in? Yeah. So um, I don't think I'll ever fully get rid of it. Um, I think because it's there from su- such a young age and during such formative years that it's, 
you don't, you don't get rid of it, you change it and you make it, you make it a, a, um, an annoying friend that you can sometimes be useful. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I had to, I had to really study um, who I am and I had to do a lot of groundwork in terms of I, I went to therapy for CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. I know your listeners will know exactly what that is because um, yeah. I was dealing really badly with that. And, and I also, I was recommended a book from a friend and I'm not a booky person, Caroline. I know I wrote one, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm more of an audio visual kind of a guy, but a friend recommended this book called The Velvet Rage. Um, and it's by um, a, a, a psychologist, a gay psychologist in America called Alan Downs. And it was the most eye-opening, healing, painful, cathartic thing I've ever read. And um, the book essentially breaks down um, a gay man's life into three sections. Um, and the first one is severe shame and denial and trying to sort of almost hide who you are and get rid of it, which we've spoken about. I went through exactly that. And then the second stage is you, you're out, you're proud, you love your identity, you have sexual relationships publicly. Um, uh, you go to gay events and you're, for all intents and purposes, an out, happy homosexual. But the hangover of shame remains and it manifests in various different ways. And, and how it manifests is in um, body dysphoria, having to be the perfect shape and size, having to be the most entertaining person at the party having to be the most successful version of yourself professionally in workplace, being the best um, in every aspect of your life all the time in order to make up for the fact that you are a gay person. Yeah, so can I ask, like, does that pressure come to, from proving that you're happier now that you're gay and out? You need to tell the world that, look, this is better for me. Because if you, if you seem upset or you seem like you're, you know, getting lost or whatever, it, you know, that would be, there'd be then a disconnect between, well, are you even happier being out? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I don't think that's all of it. I think that there is a, a sense of, you know, um, how dare you? be troubled or unhappy when you live in such an accepting society mm-hmm. and, and look at me your your straight cisgender friend who loves and accepts you and even comes to gay clubs with you how dare you tell me that your gayness is in any way hindering you from having a, a free and open life and we this is a narrative that we hear over and over again from you know right-wing arseholes in the news who basically say that you know the UK and Ireland and in, in general Western society isn't homophobic anymore. And it's like, well, live in my shoes. Yeah. Come on the tube with me and have someone hurl faggot at you because you're holding your boyfriend's hand. Come and live in my shoes as my friend steps out of a taxi crying because he was told to get out of it by a homophobic driver. Come into my shoes as you put your arms around a friend who was beaten up on the street by a group of lads because he had some glitter on his face when he left a party. Mm. This shit still goes on. And even if it's not happening to you, you know that you could be next at any point of day or night. Caroline, there isn't a moment where I don't leave my front door and look over my shoulder and check who's behind me. Still, I'm nearly 30. 
I'm a gay rights activist. I'm I'm very you know happy and out there. But the 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 dark side of of the the job and passion and love that I have for what I do is that the more recognizable I become as I work harder towards the dream, the more I fear that something really bad is going to happen because I'm instantly, I can be instantly picked out of a crowd. And that's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, in, in the current flat I have right now, I don't have, um, this is a small thing, but this is just to, to articulate what it's like to go and live through this day to day. I don't have a peephole. I don't know what they're called, you know, the, in the door yeah. where you yeah. can look out. And I hate that. It's a rented property, and I just hate that I can't see who's out there before I open the door because I, I don't know who's going to try and do something to me or my boyfriend. Um, and we have had a couple of people, um, people who are nice, saying, oh, my God, I saw you walking into your flat, and I didn't know you lived here. And it's, it's a nice thing for someone to say, like, oh, I like your work, but also it's like I don't really want anyone to know where I am where my safe space is. Yeah. I, I don't know how we got into, into this, but... Well, I actually interrupted you, but you were, you were telling me the, the three different phases. So you, you had said the, the first and the second phase and the book. So the, what was the third phase? Yeah, so, so I, essentially, I, I believe I'm in the second phase at the moment, which is, um, you know, you're 90% there. But yeah. the, the most important 10% is yet to come. And, and the sad thing is, not every gay man will ever reach stage three. Um, is what the, the book says, and I completely agree with it. And stage three is where you you finally fully reach a point of contentment where your sexuality and the trauma that you experience in those those young um, years, you, you truly, truly have managed to let go and, and not conform to the pressures of being a gay man in today's world. You are you. Gayness is a part of you, but it doesn't define you. Um, you haven't got any of those body hang-ups. It's, it's a truly, truly beautiful, heavenly place that I'm actively trying to reach through reading, therapy, doing podcasts like this, um, and checking myself constantly if I'm ever um, doing something that I know is damaging to myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's... I, I highly, highly, highly recommended reading. Um, and another one is uh, Straight Jacket, a, a, a book by a guy called Matthew Todd, which is similar but different. Something that I find, um, and you probably cover this in, in therapy, but but something that I would have thought is like, oh, whatever, but actually it's really significantly important to um, managing anxiety and, and how we feel and think about ourselves is really taking time to, to confront the core beliefs that you hold about yourself and I, I'm just curious how they've changed for you over the years and, and where they were and, and where they are now and they don't have to be perfect now like you say you're still working towards that third phase but what do you really believe about yourself now? What do I believe in myself in, in terms of who I am right now or where I want to go? Like what, what do you believe to be truths about Riyadh versus you at the back when you were 16 thinking I'm you know Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, when I think about me, I haven't even done this in therapy, so this is fun. Um, <laughs> I'll send I, you an invoice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I think I'm, I think at my heart, I'm a very, very good person. I think that it, I'm, I really, really do believe the best in people, sometimes to my own detriment. 
um, I really, I'm incredibly forgiving when people let me down. And I think that comes from being afraid of losing sometimes quite damaging people. Yeah. Wanting to be a fixer, always thinking that no matter what's going on in my life or other people's lives, I can make it better. I don't know how, but I, through conversation or through influence, I can make someone's life better or my own life better. And I think that comes from the years of trying to um, manipulate and manufacture my own world to be what I needed it to be. And I think that over time, I'm beginning to learn that actually some things are better left untouched and some people are better left um, out of your life. Uh, it's okay to let them sort of fade away and do their own thing. I think that I'm extremely passionate. Um, again, maybe to my own detriment, I think that I, I push myself to a point at which I'm... I've got nothing left. Yeah. I'm, I'm like an empty vessel. I put everything into a project. I put everything into a dream. And I failed to see in the process that I was actually running on empty. Um, and then what will happen is I'll have a little breakdown for a week. Um, um, when that happens these days, uh, what do you do to bring yourself back to centre? What what calms you? Obviously, you know, we, we both are of the same opinion that you can't, um, there's, there's no, it's completely futile to try and get rid of anxiety or, or any of those kind of stresses as part of life. And you've, like you said, you, you let it simmer, but what, what do you actually turn to when you feel that rising or you feel that, that disc, that disconnect start to appear for you again? So I have a few little tricks and I'm actually really proud that I've kind of compartmentalized them into like my little tool book of, um, of help. It's kind of like a first aid kit, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. um, that I keep in my back pocket. So I, um, I, I try and be as mindful as I can. I use those tricks that I learned in CBT. I sit with it. I, I let it, I let it, you know, come into the front of my mind and I think about it and I try and just gently, very gently unpick the reality from the manufactured fear yeah. and go, okay, hang on, hang on, put on the brakes. What, where the fuck did this thing come from? Because I was having a fabulous day up until now. Um, and when I, when I find the trigger, um, I, yeah, I, I look at what's real and what's not real. And then I, if I'm feeling up for it, if I'm feeling strong enough and it's early enough in, in the beginnings of a, of a panic attack, if I'm not completely consumed, I will make sure I go for a run. Um, and those runs that are fueled by the beginnings of a panic attack are the most amazing, thrilling runs ever. It's like fuel, like a fire under your feet. You're like, it's, yeah. I can't describe it. It's like you're a superhero. And then at the end of it, you just, you feel very proud of yourself. If I'm, if I'm not there, um, CBD oil, I love, um, and I use quite a lot. Um, so I do a couple of squirts under my tongue and I just sit and breathe. <clears throat> um, and my partner is, is my security blanket. He's amazing. He is the best listener and he really kind of thinks of things from an, uh, an alternative perspective and throws them back at me. And I'm like, oh, you're right. That isn't something to worry about. And he does it for me too. I do it for him too. Um, so we've got a really good, healthy relationship in that sense. And then I think finally, I didn't realize that this would be the case when I got her, but um, I have a, a cat. <laughs> her name is Claire and she's just the most Claire. amazing. 
beautiful thing. And I got her as, as like company for when I was working from home, um, which I do a lot. And she's ended up being a kind of unofficial service cat. She's like, you know, one of those dogs you see on a plane for someone who might have um, some sort of an issue where they, they need the, the dog as a companion. She's, she is that for me. I hold her and, oh my God, all of my attention goes into her and all of my worry just fades away. Yeah, I mean, just even the, the tactile touch of that would, would help to, to take your focus away from thoughts and panic and, and bring, bring you back to the awareness of the, the present moment, which is, is, is so powerful. So something that, you know, you, you've, you've clearly learned to like a, um, cope in the world that we're in as best you can. And people often ask me when it comes to anxiety in general, like, you know, what needs to change in the world? What needs to change in the workplace or in policy or government or schools or anything? And I've always said my goal with my books and my podcast is to help people because you can only control what you can control and you kind of to a certain extent have to let go of the rest so I've always been concerned with how can I help the individual cope in the world that we live in which you're you're doing now as best you can but what can we do at a wider society level what do you want to see more of in society and what do you think we need to put into action I think it's a no-brainer and if we start teaching young people early 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 about how the mind works, happiness, fear, anxiety, joy, contentment, and why we feel these things, then we give them the, the structures and the building blocks to kind of almost um, understand their feelings, you know, down the line better. So like, I, I don't remember having any emotional education when I was a kid. It was, all, it was all physical sex education. I mean, that was left a lot to be desired, but it was, it was there. And it was just physical. It wasn't about, here's how you feel when you have a breakup. And here's how to deal with that, that feeling of loss. None of that. Here's how to deal with the bereavement. Here's how you'll feel when you don't get that job that you went for. And I think that, you know, there's only so much you can teach kids in school. But my God, having those tools makes the other things you're learning so much more achievable. Makes that information so much more likely to go in. Because when I was sitting in those classrooms, dreading the idea of being an out person, I wasn't learning a single thing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. You're blocked. Yeah. One ear out the other. I mean, I did an awful, awful leave insert, but I know I'm not an unintelligent person. Yeah. You know, and the, the, the reason I know that is because the minute I left school, I was out and I began university. I was all of a sudden, I went from the bottom of my class to the top of my class. Yeah. I was like a completely different person. And I thought, my God, I, I always was brought up to believe by teachers who told me that I was one of the stupid kids. Literally told, God. are you stupid? Are you stupid? It's like, no, I just haven't got the capacity to learn right now because I'm dealing with some really bad shit. And you're not in an environment that allows for it. What do you do? You think like apart from just um, emotional education in schools, do you think there needs to be um, an education around different kinds of relationships so that it's not like it's it's it, like that all relationships and, and different types of, of of people and being being in different relationships or you know that they're normalized and that no one nothing is made to seem made to seem like the norm on its own versus something else. Like, do you think if there was more conversations around? Um, how people can end up being married or how people could, you know, fall in love or... It's so important, Caroline, I can't get this across, like just how 
how insignificant it might seem to in, in an SVHE class from a young age to say in a picture book, here's David and Daniel. And they are in love. And, and Daniel and David have um, a little girl called Sarah. And then, and here's Mary and John, and they're also in love, and they have a kid called Blah. And, and, and that on its own plants a seed in every young person's mind in that room that this is not a weird thing. Mm-hmm. This is not different. This is a minority. It's not much of it in the grand scheme of things. But when you do see it, you've heard of it before. It's, yeah. not, it's not likely to induce a knee-jerk reaction. It's not likely to um, make someone have a kind of a fear-driven outburst, which we saw in Birmingham this year with parents protesting outside a primary school that was teaching inclusive um, relationships education. You know, the the, the fear is that it's an unfounded fear. It's absolute bollocks. But there's a fear out there that by including diverse relationships, um, you're uh, recruiting people um, to be LGBT. Yeah. Well, let me tell you here first, here's an exclusive for you. You can't make someone gay. You can't make someone trans just as you can't make someone straight. They are that way biologically from birth and it will present itself whenever they are, you know, sexually um, mature. Yeah. And it may even present themselves as them being asexual, not into anyone. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, um, have, having that would have been incredible because it means that if, if the bully is in that class and the bully from a young age has been shown this stuff, then the, the bully's um, ammunition is rendered useless. Mm-hmm. The thing that they're calling you out on, you're a queer. It's like, well, yeah, but queerness and is awful. <laughs> yeah. Like, and what? It's like saying, oh, you, um, it's like saying, oh, you have brown hair oh it's like yeah but you what's your point blonde hair you know it's like it really doesn't matter exactly before i let you go if you could go back in time you've probably thought about this what what would you what do you wish you had the opportunity to say to maybe 14 15 year old riyadh um i'd say to him it's going to be a tough ride it's going to be challenging but um hold in there it's worth it it's worth the pain and it's worth the fight and um you know this this thing that you hate most about yourself is going to become such a a powerful tool um not just for you but for other people like it's important Riyadh. it's important that you fight uh and push through this so that you can be a voice for the next the next lot that are coming up um Mm. and that actually this this thing is going to bring you so many amazing opportunities that are going to fulfill you and are going to help you do some really great stuff. Um, so it's going to be the opposite of a career ender. It's going to actually be a career starter. To go back to the beginning of our conversation, when you persevere through that, you know, you, you get to that point, like we say, of closing that gap between how you view yourself privately and how you put yourself out to the world. And when we get to that point where there's no disconnect there and you're really living an authentic life and you get to express that through your career, that's an incredible place to be. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like I'm, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet. I think that... <laughs> I think that the industry I find myself in has a lot to answer for in terms yeah. of looking for um, a specific product in 
um, a person on screen. You know, yeah. they, they want you to be manageable. Um, I wouldn't say a puppet. I think that's an, an outdated term that isn't the fact anymore. I think there's a way, way more... Um, Make way more leeway for you to be you, but I think that we we could go a bit further and and have some more sort of real human beings on screen. Ria, there's so many questions I still want to ask you, but I think it would be like a four hour long podcast. But something that I think people will really um want to know, like your advice on, and I would direct them towards your book for this. But you must get asked an awful lot. Can you literally help me figure out the wording or the language to use or how to approach coming out? Is that all in the book? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's all in there, and you know, I'm always asked, "Well, who's the book for? Is it, is it just for um, 15, 16 year olds who are trying to come out?" It's like, no, it, it's for you trying to come out, whatever age you are. It is skewed towards a younger audience, but it's also for anyone who comes in contact with that individual. Yeah, before to better coming understand. out, during coming out, or even after, to better understand what they've gone through, what they are going through, and how you can really, truly, tangibly uplift them and help them be the best person they can be, um, knowing the, the, the trauma that, that preceded that, um, that big moment in their life. So it's, it's kind of an ally's handbook, and it's yeah. also a, a how to live your, your new fab queer life. And, and it, sounds like a, it sounds like a must read for parents of kids who have just come out. It's like, look, if, if, you, know, if you had, had that to give to your dad to say, look, we, we're not in a position where we can have a conversation right now, but in your own time, please read this and then gather your thoughts and, and then come back to me. Like, wouldn't that have been incredible? Well, what, what I insisted on doing in the book is, um, it, one of the last chapters in the book is a, a chapter written by my parents for parents. Wow. And they answer some of the biggest, most difficult questions that they had themselves before they uh, understood, you know, how to love again. And um, they, they answer it from a really, really um, empathetic place where they understand how much of a shock it can be to hear that news um, that your kid is gay, that it, it isn't something that you can just be, I'm okay with. It, it, it does take time and it's okay to take time. It's just about if you have something hurtful to say because you're feeling it in the moment, walk away. Yeah. Say it to yourself. Say it to someone else. Don't say it to that young person because it will stick and it will scar. Um, and when you're ready, with the help of a book like this or online resources or belong to youth services in, in um, Ireland, um, go check them out. Then that's the time that you can come back and, and sort of rebuild something beautiful. Yeah, amazing. Oh, Riyad, I'm so grateful for you sharing your story so um, honestly and openly and raw. And I know I asked you some questions that probably put you on the spot to make you really to make you really think. And I, I, I just I just know that so many people are going to appreciate this episode um, and and having you to follow as, as, a, as a, an incredible role model that, you know, you're not saying it was easy. You're not saying it is easy, but you're, you're, you're living it and you're, you're happy and your life is good. It is. It is. And, and, you know, I'd just have to say thank you to you for um, letting me come on the pod. And I think that, you know, this type of stuff is so important. So the one thing that helped me get over anxiety was listening to other people who've been through it. That's it. Yeah. Like, I mean, even, even before you go addressing your anxiety or your lifestyle or whatever, whatever kind of anxiety it is for me back when, when mine, when I had my kind of mental breakdown and I fell apart just to hear from one other person who just got it would have made the world of difference. 
Um, so whether it's someone listening now who who's just feeling that they're denying something about themselves, you know, it doesn't have to be about being gay or whether it's, you know, maybe a, a teenager who's listening, who's gearing up towards coming out. Knowing you're not alone is, is like the most important thing in, in, in the world. And we always forget it. We always forget that like this, that human, uh, common humanity is and that vulnerability that we all share is there. We all think of it as weakness, but actually when we lean into it, it's our greatest strength. Oh, Caroline, it's amazing. I feel like I feel like my soul is full. I've had a full meal. And I haven't because of the lockdown, I haven't been to my therapist in weeks, and this was just what I needed. I love you. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.